Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Let's be honest, the first three chapters of the book of Romans can be like, enough judgment already, enough already. You tell me how bad I am constantly. Like, that's the first three chapters of Romans, and we're going to continue to move and progress until we get to verse 21, and all of a sudden, at verse 23, there's going to be like this spring that opens up, and it's kind of like that scene in Snow White where the chirping, uh, chirpy birds and, and the butterflies are flying around, it'll kind of be like that. So while we're still in bucket number two, the wrath of God, the saints and the days, we enter into chapter three today. And chapter three is where we find the basis for the doctrine of total depravity. And here at Rest Church, total depravity is one of our closed hand doctrines. As you know, here at Rest Church, we have we have uh, closed hand doctrines and open hand doctrines, which means that if you want to be a family partner, you have to agree with these doctrines. If you, uh, if you say, hey, I believe in pre-tribulationism, modern view of whatever, we don't care. Great, great for you. High five. Um, but when it comes to total depravity, if you say, you know, I don't believe in that pastor, we say you can't enter into fellowship with us. And so here, it kind of in this basis, it's where we find the fundamentals of that in chapter 3, where Paul orates that all men have a fallen nature and that there is no one, say no one, no one good in the sight of God. And additionally, within this chapter, we see Paul begin to have the oral argument with himself. This particular style of writing is very specific to Romans. We're going to see this as we move throughout the entire book. Paul is going to have this argument with himself. And at times, you have to take a pause. And you have to reread it five or six times. And sometimes you have to try to take these questions out from the text wrestle with the question, and then wrestle with his response to it. So he's having an argument with himself while writing. He does not have paranoid schizophrenia while writing this. He is just taking into consideration, as any good pastor would, he is writing and, and giving them the answers to the questions that they're already wrestling with, Okay. And so we're going to see this oral argument. He's going to specifically be addressing arguments that his Jewish readers in the church of Rome, in particular here in chapter 3, would have been asking or things they would have been thinking. 
And as we go through this chapter, the pastor team is going to try to do our best to draw out the key elements of Paul's intentions with his questions and debates that, that, that are going on during that current time period, and then to try to contextualize it to today's world, because sometimes we, 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 we try to make, and I was telling this to the worship team earlier, we try to make the, marin, the meta-narrative of the scripture about us. We try to make the scriptures about us, we, as if we are the victor, as if if we would have been the garden, things would have been completely different. No. The narrative is not about you. The scriptures are not about you. This letter wasn't written to you. It was written to a very specific people group at a very specific time who we can glean from if we get the correct exegesis, if we get the correct hermeneutic or the correct interpretation of the scripture, we can apply it to our lives. So let's, let's all come together and with the understanding, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God, our creator. So as we come into today's text, I want to kind of rewind a tad bit to give you some context, because Paul is going to open up with a question that if we just bring it into the cold ether, you're going to be like, I have no idea what you're even talking about, right? So last week, Pastor Johan brought a sheath up here, and he talked about circumcision. He actually said the word circumcision probably 237 times. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I, the funny thing is, is I think he liked it too much. But one of the key thoughts that Johann wrestled with, because um, as we look at the three pillars of Judaism, one of the pillars is circumcision, that they believe that their salvation was found in circumcision. And um, Paul kind of gives an argument against that in the end of Romans chapter 2. And uh, Pastor Johann said this, he says, circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision. While uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. Paul makes this argument that we can follow the letter of the law in the act of circumcision, but if we don't give our hearts in our obedience, if our actions and our hearts are misaligned, we thus become, we invalidate the act of circumcision. So circumcision, as we wrestle with last week, is a matter of the heart. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Having made this case that circumcision apart from the law is of no value if we don't follow the law, Paul enters into chapter 3 with this great debate. And so here we are, church. Let's open up Romans chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4 this morning. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, even the, uh, be true though everyone were a liar as it is written that you will be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Church, let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we come to you this morning and we ask God that you would illuminate your text and your word and that we would be submissive to it. That we would come and say, God, you can have my heart, search me and know me, O God, reveal any way in my heart that is grievous to you. 
Lord, have your way in this space, in this moment, and in this time. And all God's people said, Having made this case that circumcision apart from the law is of no value, we come to chapter 3. Here, Paul is arguing in the closest and most difficult way, it will make it easier to understand if we kind of unpack it as, as a whole. And so what I want us to do is I'm going to kind of try to unpack this for you really quickly as if, and, and help you understand this argument that Paul's having with this imaginary objector, okay? So Paul's writing with this imaginary objector. And so I'm going to act out a little script for you. You can laugh at me because I'm a complete dork. I already know. You're not going to hurt my feelings any. So here we are, the objector. The result of all that you've been saying is that there is no difference between the Gentiles and the Jew, and that they are exactly the same position. Do you really mean that, Paul? By no means. The objector. What then is the difference? I feel like Michael Scott right now. (laughs) Whatever. Paul, for one thing, the Jews possess what the Gentiles never directly possessed, the commandments of God, the objector. Granted, but what if some of the Jews disobeyed these commandments and were unfaithful to God and they come under his condemnation? You have just said that God gave the Jews a special position, a special promise. Now you go on to say that at least some of them are under condemnation of God. Does that mean that God has broken his promise and has shown himself to be unjust and unreliable? Paul, far from it. What it does show is that there is no favoritism with God. And then he punishes sin whenever he sees it. The very fact that he condemns the unfaithful Jew is the best possible proof of his absolute justice. He might have been expected to overlook the sins of his special people, but he does not. And so as we look at this text, I thought by just kind of creating this role play, might help you understand this question, this, this imaginary oral argument that's going on in the Apostle Paul's mind as he's writing. And so the question is, is to what advantage has the Jew? Because we just nullified that circumcision apart from the works of the law has no advantage. And so the, the, the legitimate question comes right down to this. What, what is the advantage? In verse 2, a, that I have right there, much in every way. Paul wants it to be clear to the readers in Rome, to the church in Rome, that there is importance in the Jew. And, and, and there is importance in growing up in that tutelage. Paul believed that the Jews had a very special um, position in relation to God. That, in fact, is what they still to this day believe about themselves. The difference was that Paul believed that their special position was one of special responsibility. The Jews believed it was one of special privilege. 
Do you see that? Do you see the, the stark differences? The Jews believed that they had this special privilege, but what Paul was trying to underscore is that they had this special responsibility. What is it? What is it that they have? Why do they have this great benefit? What is it that, that makes them special? He continues on. Let's go into the rest of verse 2. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Right there it is. What makes them special? What makes them different? Why, why does Paul say that they, they, they have something that, that, that we Gentiles, we don't? They were entrusted with the word of God. They were given the Sinai covenant. They were given the Abraham covenant. They were given these very special things. oracles of God. What does he mean by that? He uses this word, logion, in the Greek. The regular use of this word in the Greek Septuagint was essentially this special pronouncement that God had given them or or, or gave them the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament. And, And that, not only that, but God's future promise of his coming salvation. The promise that was made in the garden that God was pointing forward to, as we know, to Jesus on Golgotha at Calvary. And that's what he's saying is they have been given, they have been entrusted with the word of God. Here's the key thought, though, when looking at ethnic Jews from a New Testament context. This is key when we look at Jews in Jerusalem today, when we look at people who who practice Judaism, God entrusted the Jews with commandments, not privileges. God had entrusted the Jews with commandments, not privileges. He said to them, you are a special people, therefore you must live a specific life. He did not say you are a special people, therefore you can do whatever you like. He did say you are a special people, therefore you must do what I like. God has prescripted this law and and he's saying in order for you to be a true Jew, you must follow the law. You must follow my commands. You must follow my decrees. The Jews could never grasp the fact that God's special choice was for a special duty. I want you to grab this because this morning, this is one of the key statements that I'm going to bring to you over and over and over as we go throughout this message. And as I bring it home to you, responsibility is always the other side of privilege. Responsibility is always the other side of privilege. They had the promises of God. Promises made to the patriarchs regarding regarding God's character. The promises made about the coming Messiah. This possession did not mean, however, that they were actually saved. They were not simply saved by being Jews by birth. See, because what, here's, here's what we know. Knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light the way to hell. Knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light the way to hell. 
this should bring much trepidation to us. To our hearts. Because here we sit today, in this room, in this place, with the whole story of salvation before us. We have the whole book with the message of Jesus. Yet, yet, we do little to nothing with it for the most part. Little of our lives have changed since we have come to know Christ. There's not much of a distinguishable difference between our life before Jesus and our life now. And as time has slowly went on, we have we have slowly drifted more and more and more and more back to who we were before we professed Jesus as Lord. Responsibility is always the other side of privilege. Are we like the Jews whom Paul is addressing? Are we incorrectly comfortable because of our knowledge of Jesus? Are we incorrect, I mean, incorrectly comfortable because we possess the full book, because we have the words, but the truth is, is circumcision without the acts means nothing. Just because we have the word doesn't mean it lives inside of our hearts. And so, so when I look at this and I begin to wrestle with this question, I go, is this who we are? Are we like the Jews who Paul is writing to? You're going through the motions. You're showing up to church. Yay! You showed up to church. But does Christ live inside of you? Is he the prevailing thought of your life? God does not want our intellectual ascent. He wants our hearts. Responsibility is always the other side of privilege. It'd be incorrect for us to think that Paul's writing to all of the Jews in this moment that are in the church of Rome. And I think, it's, I think it's correct because look at how he opens up verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? It is clear that there was a remnant of Jews who were faithful in seeking after Yahweh God. He puts it, what if some then were unfaithful? The reality is, is many of the Jews were unfaithful from generation to generation. They wanted God for his good things, but they didn't want to serve him. As we see, for example, in Exodus chapter 15, the, the people, they beg for God to save them from the mighty hand of Pharaoh, to redeem them from being servants and slaves in Egypt. And so what does God do? God brings Moses and he brings these plagues and he thrusts them out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and they get into the wilderness where food is literally falling from the sky and they begin to complain. They begin to grumble and say, we were better off in Egypt. We had a better life back there. I would rather be in Goshen where I was getting beaten by my slave master. Exodus 32. We find Moses going up on the mountain to, to spend time with God. Moses comes down from the mountain and he, he stumbles upon them worshiping a golden calf. 
In the, in the short period of time that he had went up on the mountain, they're down here worshiping an idol made with human hands, while the very God of the universe had just thrusted them out of Egypt. Numbers chapter 13. As God moved them out of Egypt, he promised that he would give them a land flowing of milk and honey. And, and Moses sends out the spies and they go out into the land and they begin to look at the land Canaan to see if it is ready for them to come and take. And, and, and they, they come back with this report after 40 days and they say, there's the Nephilim there. We can't ever, ever take them. And Joshua says, let us go now in and let us take them for we can do it because our God is on our side. And there is this revolt that begins to take place the nation of Israel and they they freak out saying no there's no way we can do it there's no way we can conquer these giants and because of that they wonder for 40 years because of their disobedience of faith Deuteronomy chapter 13 God commands to the nation of Israel and Moses is I mean in Joshua's last words Joshua says to them hey I'm old I'm gonna die But make sure you go into the rest of the land. There's a remnant of the land that is yet to be conquered. Do not let any of them live. Do not let any of them stick around because their gods, their idol worship will continue to infiltrate our community. So go, go, wipe the land clean of them. They disobey. And because they disobey, kings for generation after generation after generation are embroiled in idol worship. And so when Paul writes on this side of all that madness, what does he know about his people? What does he know about the tribe of Benjamin circumcised on the eighth day as he was? What does he know about them? That they are prone to be unfaithful. Just like we are. And ultimately, the greatest of all of their unfaithfulness is found in John chapter 5. Verses 39 through 40, when Jesus speaking says this, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Isn't this us, though? I know Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and I know he's specifically crafting a message to the Jews that are inside the church of Rome who, 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 who confess Jesus Christ as Lord during this season. But isn't this us prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love? Isn't, isn't this us, though? That we believe that we have salvation because we have the scriptures, because we come and we confess Jesus, but, but we refuse to bear witness to him into the streets. We refuse to bear witness to him, to our family, to our friends, because it might be controversial to their life decisions. Isn't this us, though? We want all the blessings that come with God but not the commandments that come from God. Isn't this us though? We want all the blessings that come from God, but we don't don't want the commandments that, that, that come from God. Yet we say, God, where are you? Why would you let this happen to me? 
I'm a good person. I'm better than so-and-so. God, God, I pay my taxes. I give to charity. And every now and then I, I even give to my church. God, why would you let this happen to me? Like the Jews, we only call out to God when we need his help. This is, the, this is the story of the nation of Israel is that they would go and they would like a harlot or as, as the book of Hosea says, like the whore. They run off to their lover and don't come to me. They only come to me when they need help, when they need picked back up from the mess of life that they have made. Isn't that like us? We, we, we find ourselves in this place where we say, but God, why, why haven't you done this for me? And we act as if God is in this quid pro quo relationship with us. He owes you nothing but death. Nothing but death. It's clear as we look at, at, at the scriptures here Paul is saying that God is completely justified in condemning the Jews. They had their special place and their special promises, and that very fact made their condemnation even greater. Because responsibility is always the other side of privilege. To who has been given much, there is much expected. The more opportunity we have to do right, the, the greater the condemnation if we do wrong. The more opportunity we have to do right, the greater the condemnation if we do wrong. And at its core, Paul wants everyone to understand our actions are ours to bear. And it has zero influence on God's faithfulness. Our actions are ours to bear. And it has zero influence on God's faithfulness. Looking back at verse 4. By no means let God be true, even though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul then adds a proverbial statement. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. Hear this church. Hear this church. If every human being who has ever lived declared that God was faithless, God would be found true and every man who testified against him would be a liar. It doesn't matter what we peons as human beings confess about God for he is eternally secure in his being. He is eternally faithful. Every command that he gives, it never returns back to his throne void. Everything that he speaks, it comes to pass. He is completely and totally faithful no matter what is said. And this particular allusion points back to a psalm in Psalm 116, 11. It said, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. It's like Paul is saying, God will win the verdict when the world goes on trial. 
He is true. He is faithful even when the world is full of liars. God never lies. He is always true. And church, we should take great solace, great comfort in this very thing that God is true, that God is always faithful. Take comfort in the fact that his word is entirely trustworthy. Our faith should be encouraged that our God is not like man in this way. For our God does not grow tired and weary. He does not stumble and fall. He is a strong and mighty tower, our ever-present help in time of need. Our God is not contained by buildings made in human hands. He overcomes every adversary who stands before him. Yes, that is our God. We have a God who is faithful and who is true. We cannot overstate his goodness and mercy for they are new every morning. So let God be true, though everyone else a liar. As we close out verse four, Paul cites a very particular passage from Psalm 51. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is cited from the great King David after he has sinned against God with Bathsheba. When his sin was presented to him by the prophet Nathan, David submitted himself and was willing to be judged by God. And he says of God that his judgment is proved right in his condemnation of his actions. David, even though he is the king of Israel, even though that he is considered the man after God's own heart, he doesn't skirt the judgment of God. He doesn't say, but God, you know, I was home alone. And, and you know, she looked really good. He doesn't try to make excuses. No, he, he falls on the sword and says, God, I'm willing to take your punishment. The quote from here, Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What does he say about the judgment of God? It is blameless. Because God is faithful even when we are not. And his condemnation, his his punishment upon us is blameless. So as as I come to this place, this morning, what are the takeaways that we have from these four verses? What are the takeaways from this, this, this really short message, this argument that Paul has going on? What, what are the takeaways? God's word is a blessing for those who have it. I want you to hear that. God's word is a blessing for those who have it. To those who have been given much, much is expected. Responsibility is always the other side of privilege. Our hearts honestly should tremble in fear, for we have been given this great blessing of possessing the complete narrative of our redemption. The entire spectrum of the scriptural canon, carrying the precious message of the Lord Jesus. It rests in your hands. You have it in your your 
phone. You can, you can pull it up at a moment's notice. You have the narrative of your redemption story at your fingertips. Today, for many of us, we acknowledge our failure to fully embrace this privilege. In many respects, our lives have remained largely unchanged since we have encountered Jesus. We could not draw a parallel. We can now draw a parallel to the people whom the Apostle Paul admonishes here in Romans. Have we too became complacent in our knowledge of Jesus? Wrongly assuming that it's enough to bring us comfort? Let us not forget that God desires more than intellectual assent. He yearns for our hearts to be wholly devoted to him. We must recognize that our privilege carries with it a weighty responsibility. It is inextricably linked with to our duty. We can't separate the two. To much who has been given, much is expected. As, ex, as, as recipients of the fullness of God's revelation, we have been called to live transformed lives, to reflect His glory and His goodness. Let us therefore not be content with a shallow understanding of the gospel. Let us not settle for a faith that remains stagnant, producing no viable fruit. Instead, let our knowledge of Jesus ignite a fire within our hearts, prompting us to fervently pursue a life of obedience and discipleship. May we as a church not only possess the book, but be a church that lives it out in our lives. Let us be a people about the book. Let us be a people who meditate on the book. Let us offer our hearts to God as a living sacrifice, surrendering our wills and desires, for it is in this surrendered state that we will truly experience the joy and the fulfillment found in genuine relationship with our Savior Jesus. So let us grasp the magnitude of our calling and respond with unwavering devotion. Through the grace of God, may our lives bear witness to the transformative power of the gospel. In doing so, we will honor the privilege bestowed upon us and to bring glory to his great name. God's word is a blessing for those who have it. The third, I mean the second point, the takeaway, God is faithful no matter what. It doesn't matter the opposition that you face today. It doesn't matter the circumstances that you have going on. Your God is faithful. I, I didn't have this plan to say it, and I said it to the worship team this morning. 
But I kept getting this, this call from God this morning. I kept feeling it in my spirit. And it was like it kept going, it's not about you. Because I, I've got a, a gauntlet of 48 hours. Just, just absolute madness of, of moving from this city to that city across the country. Lots of movement going on in my life in the next 48 hours. And, and, and I kept wanting to go to that. And I kept wanting to make, oh, I, I got this going on. And God kept saying, no, 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 no. You're coming before the king today. When you go in before the king, you don't go into the king and say, hey, king, here are all my problems. No, no, no. The first thing you do is you walk in and you fall before the king and you ascribe worth to him. You say, worthy are you to be praised. Worthy are you to be lifted high. Worthy is your great name. God is faithful no matter what you're going through right now. Whether you like it or not, much like Job, God is still faithful even if everything is taken away. Because he owns it all. He's not taking it away from you. It was his to begin with. So God is faithful no matter what. And if we as a church, if we, if we will come around that thing that God is faithful, it gives us this true north to point our lives towards. It gives us this disposition that says you can smack me on one side and like Jesus says, I'll, I'll let you have the other cheek and say I'll have another, sir. Because God is faithful faithful maybe you struggle to sing those words great is your faithfulness because you look at the inventory of your life and you selfishly are motivated by the things and the people who are not in it I want to tell you this is the, the call of discipleship that he gives to the people who followed him in the New Testament when the people, the rich young ruler came to him and said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. He says, no, 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 no. Go sell everything that you have. Everything that you have. And then follow me. Another man comes and says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Let me first go bury my father. He says, no, 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 no. Let the dead bury the dead. Another man comes to him and says, Lord, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me go. Let me go tell my parents I'm leaving town. He says, no, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks away is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said to those, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. See, because the American Christianity wants to say, name it, claim it. God wants to give you your blessing, but that's a, that's a load of horse manure. The call of Christianity is to come and die. It is to die to self and to say, I die. I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. That's the call of Christianity. And so if we can come around that, if we can truly grasp with what the scriptures really say, we can say in the midst of our darkest place, God is faithful. God is faithful. And how fitting the last and final thing. God's blameless judgment is coming to both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. To the Jew and to the Gentile. God's blameless judgment is coming. It will be swift like a thief in the night. I know every preacher who has stood behind a pulpit since Peter did in the book of Acts has said Jesus is coming. And over the generations, the congregation has gotten quieter and quieter saying amen. 
being lulled to sleep by the length of time. But the reality is Jesus is coming. One day he will split the eastern sky and one day he will judge the living and the dead. And his judgment is blameless because we deserve death. And so I ask you, what do you do with those three things? Well, well, first and foremost, do you know Jesus as Lord? Is he the Lord of your life or is he just the Lord of your circumstances? Is he the Lord of your life? Is, Is he everything to you? Because if he's not, you're not a disciple of Jesus. And I can't, I can't tell you this enough. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're, you're, you're going to hell. Don't, don't, don't let that happen to you. Because the reality is, is that he has made a way through his son that you can have eternal life. That if you would confess with your mouth your sins and declare him Lord of your life, you can be saved. So you put your faith, your hope, your trust in him. When you proclaim that he is faithful today in your life. 